we had some opportunity to talk about regions of the country where there's some producers that maybe don't believe that heat stress is important. And, and really, some of their work has shown that, uh, you know, even in, in the Northeast and Canada, uh, it's less days, but there's still heat stress and, and significant enough where something needs to be done economically. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like, with early detection in health, reproduction, and feeding, SmaxTech future-proofs your dairy operation. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. Ivonic stands for a holistic and sustainable value proposition for livestock production. It combines products and services and leverages digital solutions. This is all backed with high-value consultancy and deep customer understanding. Ivonic turns science-based efficient nutrition, sustainable healthy nutrition, and precision livestock farming into value for customers and consumers. Hello and welcome back to the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Barry Bradford from Michigan State University, and today I have the honor of interviewing another one of our hosts for this show, Dr. Mark Thomas. Uh, Dr. Thomas earned his BS in Animal Science at Cornell University and his Doctor of Veterinary Medicine degree in the College of Veterinary Medicine at Cornell. He also completed the Penn State Dairy Production Management Certificate Program and is a diplomat of the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners certified in dairy practice. He's also received the AABP Muriel Excellence in Preventative Medicine and Dairy Award. Dr. Thomas is a founding partner, consulting veterinarian, and the leader of the Dairy Health and Management Research Team. His main focus is production in preventative medicine, but he also engages in consulting services in the areas of nutrition, reproduction, milk quality, and replacement rearing. Dr. Thomas enjoys lecturing at meetings and also teaches veterinary students through various programs. Mark, thanks so much for joining today. It's going to be fun to have a conversation with another one of our hosts. Barry, thank you. Yeah, no, it's uh, going to be real fun to be on the other other side of the podcast. So we've met a few times over the years, but I'm curious. I don't think I've ever asked you, if, did you grow up on a farm? Did you grow up in agriculture at all? Uh, yes, I did, but uh, not in the dairy industry. Uh, my family had uh, about 60 head of uh, cow-calf operation in the Catskill area of, of New York, and, and that area is not very conducive to farming. Um, you know, still a few, a handful of dairy farms in the region, um, but a bit more than, than a hobby, but it wasn't the, the primary income for the family, but that's really where I gained my uh, love and interest of, of cattle and, and, and working with cattle. But uh, staying in New York, it was a kind of an obvious choice to, to uh, work more closely with dairy versus beef. It must have been a beautiful area to grow up in. Uh, yes, no, a great area. So you've been involved in ag at some level for a number of years now. I'm just curious at a very high level, you know, what are some of the biggest changes you've observed over your career? I think um, as I see 
from uh, you know wor working with the family and 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 then transition to animal science and then uh, working as a practicing veterinarian with a wide array of different uh, farms and, and structures is just the uh, moving into more of a business structure as a dairy. And I, I, I still really like the uh, phrase, if you will, that, you know, uh, farming uh, as a business is a great way of life and, and farming as a way of life is a poor business. And, and I think that's uh, you know, really important uh, to to everyday manage as a business. Absolutely, that that leads in well to a question about the the business that you helped set up and that you spend most of your time on now, uh, called Dairy Health and Management Services. And so, with my limited understanding of it, it seems like a, a fairly unique business model you have. Could you talk us through exactly what what the group does? Sure. Thanks, Barry. Um, so we're a, a dairy consulting group, and we consult in all areas of uh, production, so animal health, reproduction, nutrition, milk quality. Uh, but really, our philosophy is data-based decision making. So, you know, not using uh, maybe observation what we what we've seen or opinion, but really looking at the data. And when data doesn't exist to answer an important question, we design uh, commercial field trials. Uh, these all have a control group and, and are done with the rigor of uh, potential publication uh, to really answer, should we use a management strategy, a product, a vaccine, a treatment, um, and really know. And, and what's really exciting for me is we're often humbled. A lot of the things that we, we do to dairy cattle, we, we shouldn't. And there's things that we should do that don't get done because there's some perception that it's too costly or there isn't a, a economic return. Fascinating. And well, I just learned as, as we got on this meeting that um, you made a big move a few years ago and currently you're living in Mexico. So talk us through that. Okay. Thanks uh, yeah, for, for bringing that up, Barry. Uh, so we're fairly uh, an international company, um, originally from Northern New York, and that's where our home office is. And over the years, we've had the opportunity to, to grow uh, in Mexico um, and working with our partners, uh, Feedlot Health by TELUS, uh, and then also in, in China. Um, so we currently work with, with clients uh, throughout the US, Colorado, California, and there's a team of seven of us here in, in Torreon, Mexico. So I still get back to the US uh, almost every other week for meetings and clients there, but uh, we work with a great group of clients here in, in uh, Mexico. And one thing that we uh, work a lot on is uh, managing heat stress because uh, uh, for us that, that heat stress has already started, uh, not, not as severe as it will be in the next coming months, but uh, it's certainly a real challenge here in the, the high desert. So you talked about using database decision-making, right? So I guess to start with um, just, for people who don't spend as much time thinking about it, as we get into heat stress season, what are the, the biggest indicators that you expect to show up as you're monitoring herds? So what kinds of things do you expect to, to shift over months as, as the heat stress sort of sets in and, and, and impacts the herd for more weeks and months? So, um, you know, what we think is really important is, is first identifying that there is heat stress and, uh, had the opportunity to to record a podcast this week with uh, Jeff Dahl from University of Florida, and 
uh, Jeff and his team have done a lot of research, uh, especially in the area of the, the effect of heat stress on, on dry and transition cows. And uh, we had some opportunity to talk about <clears throat> uh, you know, regions of the country where there's some producers that maybe don't believe that heat stress is important. And, and really some of their work has shown that uh, you know, even in, in the Northeast and Canada, uh, it's less days, but there's still heat stress and, and significant enough where something needs to be done <clears throat> economically. Uh, but really on the individual <clears throat> cow level, we're just looking at cow behavior. So, you know, respiratory rate is probably the one uh, thing that we, we use the most and, and is uh, really easy to measure, you know, just observationally. Uh, walking pens, looking at cattle. Obviously, activity monitoring systems uh, are, are helping with that to actually get on a broader scale, um, understand when heat stress is occurring in a pen. Um, but you know what we see as as heat stress for us really starts now, uh, you know, in in, in Torreon, Mexico, and and really goes through October. So long period of heat stress is uh, the reduction in milk production and the, the reduction in fertility. And that becomes you know, more evident as we, July, August, when that uh, cumulative heat stress effect really starts to show. Yeah, and, and what gets doubly harmful then is, is uh, I certainly remember this working in the high plains, is you know, if you can't get cows pregnant through the summer and then they, a whole bunch of them get pregnant in the fall and guess what, nine months from then is dead of summer the next year. So we have lots of cows calving maybe in the worst time then. Absolutely, absolutely. And and, and that doesn't bode well for the, the high fertility cycle, if you will. No. Um, you know, some <clears throat> technologies that have been used, <clears throat> especially uh, uh, corral cooling, if you will. Um, so uh, uh, what's called a baño, so moving cows to a corral where they're intensively cooled, you know, have really helped reduce the effects of heat stress, but certainly not eliminating them. So then other strategies, uh, in addition to, to cow management and cooling, but uh, ration strategies that maybe, you know, can reduce uh, fermentation a bit, uh, the, the heat production from fermentation, if you will, uh, and, and then always looking for novel strategies also. Right. So you mentioned that, you know, one of the really unique things that your group does is as you said, where there's a, a gap in the knowledge base, you guys go design studies to try to fill that gap. So uh, I understand you've done some work in, in the space of feed additives that might influence cow's ability to withstand heat stress. Can you talk me through some of what you've done there? Sure. I, I think one of the uh, examples that would fit well for that would be a trial that we did in, in 2019 with uh, Nutritech uh, from Diamond V. And uh, that was a, a sponsored trial. Uh, they had reached out to us looking to uh, document the, the effect of uh, Nutritech on, on heat stress and, and performance. Uh, so what better place uh, to do a heat stress trial but but Torreon, Mexico. <clears throat> uh, so we did that trial at two commercial dairy farms. Um, we had just under a thousand cows per treatment group enrolled. Uh, control was the, the base diet and, and uh, treatment was the, the same exact TMR with, with the addition of Nutritech. And we ran that trial from May through October. So we were able to track these cows uh, you know, for quite a period of time during heat stress and look at the primary outcomes of interest were really uh, milk production. 
uh, <clears throat> performance. The trial wasn't designed to look at transition disease. These cows were, were post-fresh when they were started and also uh, was not designed to look at reproductive performance either because there were some cows that were already uh, inseminated uh, at the time of uh, enrollment. So you design this, you go to two separate dairies. I'm just trying to understand how you set this up um, on, a, on commercial dairies. And you have, you know, presumably a, a decent number of similar sort of mid-lactation pens. And, and then you randomize treatments to those across both dairies. Is that sort of how it worked? That's a great question, Barry. Yeah, as, as you know, sometimes we'll hear it, that, that it's not possible or very difficult to conduct commercial field trials on, 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 on dairies. And what we've done within a, a group of clients, not all of our clients uh, want to do research, but, but many do, um, is uh, worked on uh, creating an infrastructure on the dairy for commercial research. So training of the teams um, and, and so forth so that they really understand the, the concept of, uh, of randomization and the importance of that and, and then maintaining balance in pens and so forth. So. Um, we now are, are uh, set up to do pen level trials uh, in quite a number of our, our client farms. Um, in this specific trial, at, uh, we had 10 sets of pens, uh, so five treatment, five control, and uh, there was uh, four sets in, in one herd and, and six in the other. So uh, we were able to you know, replicate at the pen level and, and two different sites. And then at the time of the trial start, uh, we uh, randomize cows so that we have balanced pens, days in milk, milk production, uh, somatic cell count, uh, in this case, days pregnant also, or days post-insemination, and uh, both multipurpose and, and, and primipurpose cattle. So we have a good balance of, uh, of uh, cattle in, in these pens. And I apologize if I get in the weeds a little bit, but this is interesting to me. I've, I've worked on designs like this myself. How, how, did, how does your team deal with cows moving in and out of those pens? So, for example, you know, you start treatment, say, in May. Cows have to move through those pens, my guess is. Um, if a cow comes in in June, do you ignore her? Uh, if a cow leaves before the end of the study, do you also ignore her and just look at the cows that stay the whole time? Or how do you deal with that? That's a great question. Um, so we actually have two different models that we can use. In some farms, we can actually, depending on the length of the trial, we can actually lock pens. And uh, uh, in this case, um, we weren't able to. But if it's a shorter trial, then we can move cows into pens. We, there's enough pen space that we can actually close that pen. And that could be potentially uh, two months you know, during lactation where those cows, except for maybe uh, hospital moves, those cows are going to stay in, in that same pen and they'll, they'll go through their normal management routines of insemination and so forth. In cases where uh, it's a longer trial and that's not possible, we've created a, a dynamic pen model where cows are, are really randomized going into the pen and then coming out of the pen. So we can keep that balance. And what we do is uh, really make a decision and say, okay, based on the effect of if it's a feed supplement, how long would it take to potentially see the effect from the supplement? We would use the milk production and if, and if it's individual cow components, um, perhaps if a cow has been in the pen for at least three weeks and then has at least uh, five tests per, perhaps. 
Okay, so it would be um, adjusted for each individual product. If a product would take a, a, a longer time for response, then it may be cows that at least are in the pen for uh, four weeks and then have X number of tests afterwards. I see. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And then obviously, uh, dry matter intake is at the pen level. You know, until we have a, a, a you know large pen method of, of individual cow dry matter intake, it's it would be uh, pen level from for dry matter. That makes sense. Okay, so so you ran the study through most of the summer um, again in Torreo in Mexico. Um, 10 pens, five on each treatment across a couple of farms. So what were the main findings that you had from this study? So really interesting uh, results. Um, what we found was that in uh, multiparous cows, uh, there was uh, just under uh, a kilo of milk uh, difference uh, favoring the, the Nutritech product, okay? And uh, a reduction in dry matter intake. Um, so these cows were truly more efficient. They, they ate less and they made more milk. In first lactation animals, uh, the milk production was the same. There was no uh, increase in milk, but those first lactation animals also consumed less uh, on par with the, with the uh, multiparous cows, uh, so uh, more efficient. And, and I think that's a really important point to, to, uh, to make to the listeners here is, you know, many times herds are trying to do their own mini trials, if you will, and they're, they're maybe... Uh, have some pens that are fairly similar, and we're going to we're going to put a supplement in one pen and not the other. And I think what what really hit home with this result with these results is, um, you know, of course for this trial we we would measure dry matter intake, um, a, including refusals. But what if you just put that product in, and you know you either didn't have the capability or you weren't uh, measuring dry matter intake between those pens, you would make the assumption that this product didn't work. Okay, no difference in milk production. Uh, I'm going to pull it out. When actually, in in these first lactation animals, uh, you know, that's about a, a, a three to one return on product based on the efficiency. So, you know, just keep in mind all the other factors or effects when when you do a, an an on farm trial, if you will. That's a really good point. Can you? T what was the magnitude of the intake response? Roughly. Okay. So if we if we look at uh, across now, remember this is <clears throat> across the um, in, entire period of time. If we look at that uh, dry matter reduction, it was uh, uh, 800 grams reduction in, in dry matter intake uh, between the control and, and treatment group. So economically, that's uh, an increase in efficiency. Uh, of uh, for the multiparous cows of uh, 0.06 uh, uh, feed efficiency. So what's really interesting also within this is, you know, the next question that comes up by most folks is, okay, they ate less and made in, in heifers the same milk. Uh, heifers, obviously, first lactation animals. Multiparous cows, they made more milk. Where did that milk come from? Did, did they lose body condition? And, and what's interesting in, uh, we, we measured body condition, uh, the same technician, uh, beginning midway through and at the end and body condition score, both in first and, and second grader animals was actually greater in the treatment group in the Nutritech group. So these animals were truly more efficient. They weren't pulling the, 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 the milk off their back, so to speak, and losing condition. Okay, so here I, I'm sure you'll have to speculate, but I'm curious, 
why do you think, you know, feeding this product at, I assume 19 grams per day. So it's a very tiny fraction, about one, one thousandth of the diet. What, how do you think that would make the animal more efficient? Um, you know, that, that's a great question. And, and I'll throw in another, uh, finding that, that actually even, you know, then makes us, uh, uh, discuss and, and think even further, uh, but you know, truly affecting the the, the rumen efficiency, um, uh, making that that rumen more efficient. So uh, ability to uh, utilize nutrients uh, more efficiently, and therefore reduction in dry matter intake uh, with you know, either the same or more milk production. One finding that we had, we, we used intravaginal thermochromes in a subset of cattle to look at uh, core body temperature. And what was also interesting is that the Nutritech cows for over 50% of the day had a lower core body temperature. And, and, and that's one that, you know, you really have to start. Um, is it because of in, improved rumen efficiency? Is, is that rumen producing less heat? Um, is there some anti-inflammatory effect, which, which you know, some of these trials with uh, uh, yeast culture products have found a, a reduction in, in uh, uh, immune, or I shouldn't say inflammatory response. So is that inflammatory related? Is that rumen fermentation related? Really, you know, we don't know, but uh, that was a statistically significant reduction in body temperature. That's fascinating. And I'm curious, was it more like during the nighttime cooling window that they were cooler or was it more in the heat of the day that they were cooler? We actually found that effect during the, uh, started in the, in the uh, late morning to afternoon and when that was actually most profound in late afternoon, the difference. Um, and, and then through the early morning. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so some really interesting findings there. I think another important co uh, comment to make, Barry, is you know, outcomes of economic interest. The body temperature piece is is really cool to see and helps explain, you know, perhaps some of the findings. But uh, that alone is not an economic uh, uh, outcome that we can say yes, you should use this product. Okay, that that's really interesting, and we think lower body temperature for fifty percent of the day is good. But if milk is the same and dry matter intake's the same, well then almost who cares? That's cool, but but that's not going to make us money. So you know, it's 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 milk and and dry matter intake is where the economics lie. Of course, another aspect of the economics uh, could be in in the reproductive outcomes. Um, you had a, de a decent number of animals, but you were starting at different phases. And did you have a chance to look at that, or did you decide not to because some cows were already pregnant starting the study? Correct. The, the trial wasn't designed um, to, to look at reproductive outcomes. You know, there was some discussion, can we, can we tease out some of those cows and, and, and look at that? And we've done a little bit of that, but it, 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 you know, some cows were, were just inseminated, were inseminated early in the trial. We always do, um, we, you know, we have, a, we have uh, within any trial, we do a, a week of baseline. So those cows are moved into pens. So we have a week of baseline. We generally, depending on the product, have two weeks of adaptation. So that's just those cows. If it's a supplement, they're they're adapting to that product, and then they're uh, then we have the trial period. Um, so again, you know, when there's a question, do those cows need to be exposed to that through transition? Um, you know, or early fresh period, uh, which these cows weren't. 
We did find a trend in reduction of somatic cell count over time. Um, again, it wasn't a, a primary outcome of interest and it wasn't necessarily powered for looking at um, mastitis cases. Uh, overall disease, there were no differences seen, but again, these were cows that were starting post-fresh. So, you know, we, we would expect that in general, they were past the transition health issues. Um, but there was a trend towards reduction in somatic cell count in the treatment versus control groups. Okay. And that, that reminds me, I was going to ask, uh, presumably then you also looked at milk components. Were they similar across treatments? Yes. Milk components were, were similar across treatments. Um, so uh, no significant difference there. Uh, one thing I think about a lot with sort of dietary tools that we might use to combat heat stress is, you know, they add cost to the diet. A lot of times people, if they're sold on that sort of concept, um, maybe want to plug it in when they're confident they're into heat stress. So maybe it starts in June, you know, depending on where you're at in the, in the country. Or, um, But one thing I wonder about is if, so for example, in Michigan here in mid-April, we had a couple of days of 80 degree weather, 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, which for Michigan is very unusual, and uh, it was surrounded by 30-degree weather. <laughs> so I, I wonder if um, having a strategy in place ahead of something like that is actually potentially more impactful than when cows are sort of already accustomed to that sort of weather. I, I'm just curious if you have any experience or have done any studies kind of at that, uh, at that question. So it, um, that's an excellent question, Barry, and, and you know, we, we – we think about this every day, especially when we present this data to our clients, because we certainly do plenty of trials where we don't see an effect or we do see a, an effect, but the, the it's not economical. Okay, The, the cost of the product uh, is greater than the return that we'll see. Um, so I guess, you know, how we almost always present research data is, is really looking at type one and, and type two error on the dairy. Okay, so, you know. For, for those of you uh, to remember, because sometimes I have to uh, think about it again, is you know type one error is implementing a procedure or a product or some type of management change when the, there's no positive effect in, in, in doing so. So you know it would be using a supplement, for example, but that supplement you know ha it doesn't have any beneficial effect. And then a, and then a type two error would be uh, you know failure to implement something that does have a positive effect. Um, I heard someone uh, last year present this as, as type one error is the, the teenage error. Okay. So if you think about it, it, it's doing something when there's no positive effect. And then, and then type two error is the spousal error. That's not doing something when you should. So if that helps any of the listeners uh, remember type one versus type two. Um, but with all seriousness, what we just say is, okay, um, this is the potential return. And you know we can we can put that in an economic economic model, uh, cost uh, per unit of dry matter, milk price, so forth. Where do we see an effect? Okay, so in this in this case we have milk and dry matter intake. We don't see anything in components. Obviously, some trials there's some health effects, uh, milk quality effects, and then here's the return. Okay, so in this case we 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 did this trial during during heat stress. You know, Diamond V has a fair bit of research from, from other groups and uh, looking at effects during non-heat stress times. So our, our 
what we believe here is that if this effect was seen during heat stress, that that effect would likely be present not, uh, you know, when we don't have heat stress or may actually be greater augmented. So therefore, reasonably based on how this product works, uh, would be a strategy to use potentially year round. And then based on the return, uh, the, the, the risks are fairly low uh, given the, the potential returns. Again, not all products have that same return and then it becomes more of a discussion. Do we use it strategically in certain groups, certain times of the year, certain stages of lactation? Great, great explanation. Yeah, there's always uncertainty, right? We'll never have enough studies to answer every nuanced uh, sub, subgroup of cows, sub, you know, every unique situation, but type one and type two is a good way to think through it. No, that's a great point too, Barry. Um, uh, was discussing with, with one of my colleagues, uh, Matthias Stangaferro, yesterday about a trial design for a, a company and Oh, you know, you could you could do every iteration of dose and product and you combine it with this product or not. And you would have seven trials, you know, so you have to pick, OK, what dose, what stage uh, and then start there. And maybe you do do now, you know, f uh, further trials and over time. But um, I guess that's one of the exciting and the parts about research. And then, you know, one of the drawbacks also. Yeah. Sometimes I jokingly say it's job security for those of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, so it, it's fun talking with you because um, you both advise, you know, farms, but you're designing studies to try to answer questions carefully. And you do that across lots of types of technologies or strategies. And so I, I'm curious from a very high level, if you look out in the next, say, 20 years, what do you think is potentially the the most impactful thing we can advance on in the dairy industry? So uh, this may be a bit different uh, line of discussion and thought from you know all that we've talked about here in data and research and and, and so forth. But uh, HR, human resource management, you know, it, it's just every day, every day. Yesterday, I had a conversation with the dairy producer and. You know, we, we were discussing implementing a program and there's no question on the data and the, and the dairy producers uh, confidence in that data that there's going to be a response. But we probably just can't implement it today. And, you know, how much we hear that. You know, so everything is driven by people to be able to conduct these commercial field trials. You know, I said we don't do those on all farms. Um, and part of it is interest on the farm, but also it's we, we know we have a really solid, dedicated crew that, you know, every day we know everything doesn't go smoothly, but then we can document that. It's not someone's going to cover that up or, you know, they, they didn't do this or didn't do that. And, and as long as we know that, we, we, can, we can manage it, right? So what I see, you know, maybe this leads to what sets apart, you know, the, those uh, producers that, that that really get it done is, is developing that team. Um, and, you know, one person can't do any, any uh, number of things that can bring the whole team together. And that's the same in our business. Um, and I, I see that on the dairy. So I would say, con, you know, continued development of people is really where it's going to hit home. There's going to be new technologies. There's going to be uh, you know, things we did in the past that we bring back, things we do now that we this we find are are not what we should be doing. But day to day, 
it's still going to be driven through people. Yeah, that resonates with me. Good answer. All right. So as hosts, we get to make people squirm a little. So it's kind of fun to put you in the hot seat. <laughs> I like this question. Is there something you believe strongly that uh, maybe a lot of people in the industry might disagree with? Something I believe strongly that, uh, well, I, I, I'd say, and this is driven from our, from our research overall, is that uh, there, there are lots of things that we believe strongly in that people continue to do. And, 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 and I won't name one particular thing, but I'd say really challenge yourself to look at all the things that you do to a cow, uh, you know, injections and, and, and products and supplements, and then, you know, let the cow be a cow. Um, we, we often think that, uh, you know, treatments or preventatives are beneficial. And, and, you know, what we found that for, for, a number of things they're actually they're not just neutral so they you know they they do nothing and they they cost money but they're actually detrimental um so and there's a list of those but i i would say you know maybe start with vaccines i see some vaccination protocols that the, you know the, the poor cows a, a, a pin cushion and let's just think about really good management nutrition supporting that cow in her environment and what do we, what can we take away that we just, you know, give her in her feed, inject, drench her with what have you that are un unnecessary? I, I've definitely seen interventions where it's sort of a placebo effect for the humans involved, where that they psychologically need to feel like they did something, even if you show them pretty good evidence that it's probably not helping the cow at all. So that's that's a struggle sometimes. No, absolutely, absolutely. And, and I I recall we were riding with a, a veterinarian many many years ago, and you know, like, well, what does that do? Oh, it it it, it appeases the client. You know, where we we need to give she'll get better anyway, but we'll give we'll give her some B vitamins. And, and so I, again, but just for the listeners, challenge what you do and think outside of the box because we we form these opinions that that has to be good based on first principles. And many times it's 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 neutral or detrimental. And when it's detrimental, that's that's pretty humbling to find out. You know, we do a trial, we have a hypothesis, and then, wow, that's not what happened, right? And and good data. So we're, we're you know we're certain of that. So I, I guess that's where I would challenge the the listeners. It's time for our famous three. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like R Yeast 40, Ruminal and Intestinal Double Modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition, Exelite by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia, its uncomplicated excellence, Fibro Animal Health Corporation, Healthy Animals, Healthy Food, Healthy World, Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge, DSM providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. Maximize profitability and herd health with early detection in animal health, reproduction, calving, and feeding. The most advanced bolus technology and professional support from agricultural experts makes this possible. SmaxTech, the health system that future-proofs your operation. Okay, you, you've asked these questions of lots of people. Now we get to see what your answers are. So our, our standard three questions we ask everybody. So first of all, what's your favorite dairy-related book or resource? 
So uh, I'm going to give you two, Barry. Um, really, JDS uh, for me, you know, I, I really enjoy when I get the email uh, articles in press or, or the, the new edition. Um, it's probably one of the things I open up right away and I scan and then I click on those and I at least get them on my desktop and in, 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 uh, on my web browser. Okay. Sometimes I sit there a few days, but okay, I got I got to read those or I want to scan them quick. Cause I, I want to know, uh, what that, that new data is. And that's, what's exciting. Um, journal dairy science in case anybody didn't know the, okay, okay. I'm sorry. Journal dairy science, your journal yep, yep. dairy science. And, and, and then I'll say, um, you know, within that, uh, resources are the the producers we work with every day that but even more so that the folks that were the, the fresh cow crew the repro crew uh the trimmers the calf management crew listen to those folks they they every day they're doing that job and if they tell you something is different okay and maybe they're not always using you know data or statistics but if they tell you something's different listen to them because probably they have a really good pulse on what's going on. And I think, you know, what, what's my resource is listening to those folks. They, they know what goes on. Um, Saturday, I, I met with a group of uh, uh, veterinarians at a farm. We we're changing the reproduction program and they had a group of students, veterinary students there listening. And I told those students, I said, I think the students maybe looked at some of these folks as, Oh, they just, this is their job day to day. And, Maybe they didn't look up to them. And I said, you students, you need to spend time with these folks because they know far more than, you know, they, they implement what we do every day. Ask them what it is to, you know, find the sick cow, cheat the sick cow and so forth. So use the use people as resources. That's great advice. All right. What about your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? So un unfortunately, uh, Barry, I, I, I need to probably read more like I, I have in the past because my reading tends to be pretty, pretty work related scientific. And then when I'm not reading, I'm, I'm out doing something outside active wise, hiking, running, biking, what have you. Um, but I would say if there's a resource, um, and, and probably most people see this, but, but really just the internet in general, just, you know, from fixing something in your house to, uh, you know, an, an interesting question, as I look back, you know, I don't even know what we did, you know, when I first got out of vet school, if you had a question, you, you, you know, had to research it in the library or something. So I think we forget, and, uh, and certainly young people today who, who grew up with that, but just the, what we have at our fingertips, but then also filter some of that stuff, right? Um, you know, you know, that, that's what's super important, uh, especially in animal ag, you know, if I see some of these things that come up that are anti-meat, anti-milk, anti-agriculture that are just so false, and then I worry about, you know, I can filter that. I understand that. But what about the, you know, average consumer who sees that and, and doesn't understand? So I think use Google and, and those sources, but but then really question them, right? Really question things. It's easy to start. Um sort of just whining about your kids spending too much time on TikTok or whatever. But, you, you know, there's obviously a lot of things we just take for granted now every day that weren't there even when I was a kid. Yes, absolutely. All right. So last question, and maybe you kind of started on this one already, but in your opinion, uh, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are less successful? I think, uh, you know, for, for me, it's, it's 
motivation every day to find something new and exciting, right? You know, and I guess uh, you know the the research side for us is is uh, what what keeps me and I know a lot of our team members you know, excited every day that we're going to, we're going to find something new. And, you know, we'll sometimes hear, well, you've changed your protocol or you've changed your opinion. Again, we, 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 we try not to use opinion, but no, we didn't. We go, well, yes, we did, but it's because we found something new. And I, and I, I look, so be, be motivated to change. I look back as a young veterinarian, some of the things that I did to cows, uh, you know, giving, Cows that are standing and walking around a bottle of calcium because their ears are cold and, uh, you know, adjunct treatments and things that now we we would never do. And then on the flip side, some things that we did and went away and now have come back because they're actually there were some benefits. So uh, find your your what motivates you and, and then be open to change. And you don't have to be the earliest adopter to change because <clears throat> maybe that's not proven, but don't lag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good advice as well. Well, Mark Thomas, I've greatly enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for being a guest uh, and, and on top of your work as a host for the Dairy Podcast Show. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Barry. I really appreciate it. And, and thanks for the, uh, the organizing team to, to invite me also. Well, thanks for joining us on this episode. Don't forget to hit that like button so that you uh, get notified about upcoming episodes. And we'll see you next time.